Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So weight loss has been shown to help reduce knee pain related to osteoarthritis. But can weight loss prevent osteoarthritis altogether? This is the question we're trying to answer in our new clinical trial called the Osteoarthritis Prevention Study. To be eligible for the study, you need to be a woman aged 50 years or older and overweight. The study is being conducted in Sydney and Australia, as well as Chapel Hill and Winston-Salem in North Carolina and Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. If you'd like to learn more, please click on the link in the show notes. Just imagine you've been prescribed a medicine by a well-meaning clinician. And it comes as a surprise to you, but after a period of time, the pain that that medicine is meant to be treating is actually getting worse. And if anything, the medicine appears to be much less effective than what it was. And at the same time, the pain that you're taking it for continues to get worse. We're digging into a really important topic and a complex topic called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So that's a condition when after you've been taking opioids for a period of time, you actually get increased pain sensitivity and reduced tolerance for pain. This is a very common problem in people that have osteoarthritis who are taking opioids longer term. These are people who are taking this medicine for pain, but unfortunately, it's actually having the reverse effect where the pain intensity increases, you get spread of pain to other areas of the body and reduce pain relief from the medicine itself. Now, there's a lot of potential reasons why this hyperalgesia may be occurring and they might include psychological factors environmental factors such as stress anxiety or expectations of the person that is affected but one area that hadn't been looked into much before was that of pain sensitization and that's the area that we're going to try and dig in a little bit today to better understand why opioids might be contributing to increased pain intensity 
rather than what they're actually meant to be doing. And so we're privileged today to be joined on joint action by Kasaku Ayagi. Kasaku's an assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso and the director of pain research in mechanism-based physical therapy. And his expertise is in pain and central pain mechanisms in osteoarthritis. Hello, Kasaku. Welcome to the show. Hello, Dr. Hunter. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's abs absolutely my pleasure, Kasaku. The content of today is really, really important to the people out there. And I think they'll they'll gain a lot from listening to you and hopefully gain a lot of knowledge that will help them in managing their disease. But before we get into the main content, just in an effort to get to know you a little bit better, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Sure. So I'm originally from Japan, but I'm currently a permanent resident of the United States of America. And then I am a physical therapist and also rehabilitation scientist. I have eight years of clinical care experience as a physical therapist, where I saw many patients with you know, pain in people with osteoarthritis away. And then I obtained my master's degree and my PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Kansas Medical Center. And then I also did my postdoctoral training in Boston University School of Medicine for three years. And then lastly, last year, I was appointed as a tenure track faculty member at the University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP. So my research has been focusing on the chronic pain in people with OA. And then in terms of my typical day, so as I'm a morning person, so I usually wake up in the early morning, like five or six, and they start working. And then my work includes research, writing manuscripts, grants, teaching to the students of the physical therapy you know, program, and then also in the mentoring students. And then during the day, I usually you know, get to the point where I really need to clear my head, which is typically happening at around 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. So that if that happens, I go to the gym to work out or go for a walk with my wife. And then I after refresh myself, clear my head, I go back to work until I finish my daily goals. And after that, you know, I try to spend at least one hour with my kids. I have two kids. So yeah, this is pretty much about my typical day. So it sounds like both a long day, but very, very full day. Um, and <laughs> I would assume very fulfilling and you look like you enjoy what you do. Yeah, I, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful. Now, Kasaku, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? So I love going hiking with my family. And then I currently live in El Paso in Texas, where we have the beautiful mountains, the parts, the part of the Rocky Mountains. So there are so many great, you know, you know, hiking trails close by. So whenever I get the chance, I bring my kids or wife, go for hiking and then, you know, having a stunning view from the top of the mountain is kind of priceless. So, and I can be fully relaxed and recharge. So that are, that's what I would do. <laughs> Wonderful. And and the kids generally go with you and do they enjoy the hiking? Oh, that's a great question. So they used to enjoy accompanying with me, but now since I, I have lived in this place for one year, they kind of start saying like, Dad, I don't want to do it today. Maybe next time because, you know, it's kind of tired. <laughs> 
So well, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, but there's a wonderful uh, trail that has been, I guess, advertised and promoted called the Kamano Kadu uh, in Japan that follows an old trail that goes through a number of shrines in Japan. Anyway. Oh, yeah, maybe Kamakura. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have, you know, back in my, you know, back in Japan, there are so many, you know, shrimp with, uh, you know, with the beautiful falls and the trails around it. Okay, yeah. All right. So I'm obviously getting distracted distracted already, <laughs> Kasaku, but that's okay. No, no, um, this, is fun. this is fun. If you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? All right. So if I were to describe myself in five words, probably I would say I'm a goal-oriented, tenacious, determined, passionate, and maybe appreciative person. I think at least my family would agree with it. Yeah. All wonderful qualities. And I think it's great to have your family supporting you. And if they see you in that light, I'll believe them. (laughs) Now, today's topic is really important because, as you well know, there's a lot of what we might call evidence practice gaps that particularly relate to the use of opioids in the context of osteoarthritis. They're widely used. Um, The evidence would not necessarily support that. But just to give the listeners a sense, how many people with osteoarthritis approximately take opioids for the management of their osteoarthritis? Approximately 40%, of people with knee osteoarthritis, which is the most common type of OA, still uses opioid. And in addition to that, 10% of those with knee OA uses opioids chronically. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to, ex, to extend from that, presumably most of these prescriptions are originating from their caring doctor, their caring physician, and or surgeons involved in managing them perioperatively. Right. Does the evidence support the use of opioids in the management of osteoarthritis? As far as I know, almost all treatment guidelines related to the osteoarthritis actually do not recommend opioids, especially when it comes to chronic opioid use. Because of the limited effect size, where you know, there are a number of you know, adverse events that are associated with opioids. Yeah. So let's let's dig into that a little bit further, Kosaku. So what are those adverse events that are associated with the use of opioids? Right. So again, there are a number of you know adverse events associated with opioids, but the most common ones that I know of is nausea, dizziness, constipation, and then vomiting. And then if you use opioid chronically, that actually increases the risk of fracture, cardiovascular event, opioid dependence, and even mortality. Yeah. So at least from an individual perspective, lots and lots of potential for harm. And as you mentioned a moment ago, at least the current evidence would not suggest it has a favorable effect on symptoms. And in, in fact, you know, what we call the effect size or the, the the magnitude of benefit for both pain and function is not of a clinically meaningful change for, for people that have osteoarthritis. So when we take into account that potential for benefit and we take into account 
the harms that Kosaku's just outlined, the harms are outweighing the benefits here. So the you know the the right. the risks here are are outweighing any potential optimistic outcomes. So one topic that you've been working on that I think is incredibly important for people to understand is that of a concept called opioid induced hyperalgesia. So they're big, they're big terms. I'm just wondering if you can disentangle that a little bit for us, just so we can understand exactly what it is you're talking about there. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to explain, you know, as clearly as possible. So opioid-induced hyperalgesia, abbreviated as OIH, is actually a paradoxical increase in pain despite taking opioids trying to control pain. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great explanation. So just to, just to quickly recap, a person's on opioids, presumably for a prolonged period of time, and as a consequence of being on opioids, they get increased symptoms rather than reduced symptoms related to their origin of pain. That's exactly right. So yeah. even if they increase the dose of the opioids, actually, you know, their symptoms actually get worse. So this is called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how common this problem is? That's actually a great question. I I can't recall off the top of my head any you know specific papers you know, you know talking about the specific numbers who may present ORH in people with osteoarthritis. Yeah. But H is closely associated with chronic pain, and also OIH is closely associated with so-called central pain mechanisms. Uh, central pain mechanisms means kind of you know your pain is not coming from from the knee, for example, but from the brain or spinal cord. So we 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 know that about one third of people with knee osteoarthritis actually present with central pain mechanisms. Therefore, we I assume about one third of one third of people with knee OA may present also with you know opioid induced hyperalgesia. Yeah. Now there's another concept that's thrown around in the context of the use of opioids is that of opioid tolerance. And I I guess just to better understand, because essentially what you said a moment ago is that even if you increase the dose of opioids in a person that has opioid-induced hyperalgesia, they won't redeem any additional benefit. Is that because they've got increased tolerance to the use of opioids? And opioid tolerance is the reason why that hyperalgesia is happening? Actually, you know, the opioid-induced hyperalgesia is actually totally different from opioid tolerance. So opioid tolerance is defined as an increase in the opioid dose to still maintain analgesia. So in other words, with opioid tolerance, opioid should still work to reduce your pain if you increase the dose of opioids. Whereas, you know, OIH, as I said in a moment ago, worsens your pain while taking opioids, even with an increase in the dose of the opioids. Yeah. 
And presumably with that increased dose, there is also increased dose for uh, addiction potential related to the use of opioids. Right. So the, in the increased dose can ob obviously lead to, uh, to further addiction to the opioids. Now, right. um, Kosaka, you recently published a study in arthritis care and research on this topic of opioid-induced hyperalgesia to try presumably to better understand its origins. But can you just explain a little bit about the study that you've done? So the purpose of the study was to investigate an underlying mechanism of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, OIH, because we don't know what causes OIH, and that's important uh, to know. And then among many potential underlying mechanisms of OIH, we are particularly interested in the pain sensitization. So pain sensitization actually increases pain severity and sensitivity, and the pain sensitization occurs due to abnormal changes in the, in the neurons related to pain in the nervous system, right? And then we hypothesize that pain sensitization may be one of the major underlying mechanisms of OIH because use of opioids can also, you know, make such changes in the nervous system. Furthermore, you know, OIH and pain sensitization have kind of overlapping clinical symptomatic presentations that include like increase in the pain severity, sensitivity, and widespread pain. So because of those reasons, you know, we conducted research to investigate whether pain sensitization mediates on the paradoxical pain increase while taking opioids. So we did the study, which was two year longitudinal study using large cohort data of people with knee osteoarthritis. And uh, we found that compared to non-opioid users, Opioid users at baseline actually had greater knee pain two years later. Furthermore, pain sensitization also had mediating effect on such a paradoxical relationship. However, that mediating effect was kind of very small, and we were not sure about its clinical you know, significance of it. So to summarize what we found uh, from this study is that Yes, as compared to non-opioid users, opioid users at baseline had greater knee pain two years later. However, whether or not pain sensitization is a major underlying mechanism of OIH is not clear. So maybe there are many, some other underlying mechanisms of OIH rather than pain you know, sensitization uh, that are contributing to OIH. Yeah, so just to, just to briefly recap, Kosaku, so the... Essentially, you set out with a hypothesis to test to see whether the opioid-induced hyperalgesia, so this paradoxical increase in symptoms that people with opioids get mm -hmm. in the context of a cohort of people that have osteoarthritis, was being mediated through mm -hmm. pain sensitization. And you, you used a couple of different ways to measure the pain sensitization. And essentially, right. what you found is that there was some mediation, but it was very small. And it's likely that there are a number of other factors mm -hmm. that are contributing to the opioid-induced hyperalgesia that are not pain sensitization. Right. That's exactly yeah. what I meant. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have a sense or any thoughts as to what those mechanisms might be? Right. So I think there are possibly many potentially underlying mechanisms you know, contributing to OIH, but one of the underlying mechanisms that I think of is actually, you know, psychological symptoms such as depression. Because psychological symptom depression due to pain has been associated with chronic pain, as well as, uh, you know, increase of the risk of developing OIH as well. So because of that, it may be possible, just possible that, you know, if you use opioids, especially if you use opioids for a long time, it may develop psychological symptoms such as depression, and that, that in turn may cause greater pain. But yeah. again, this is just my speculation, and this has to be, you know, tested uh, by the future study. No, I mean, it, it seems very reasonable, particularly given the concomitant presence of mood disorders in many people that have neosteoarthritis and the compounding effects that opioids right. the opioids often have in making those mood disorders oftentimes worse rather than better mm-hmm. just wondering also particularly given the frequency with which people with neosteoarthritis have uh, problems with sleep quality um, and the impact that opioids similarly have on sleep, would sleep potentially play an important role here as well? Yeah, so, you know, the opioid use, sleep problem, and a chronic pain, you know, the, there are a good number of paper evidence out there, you know, showing association, you know, interrelationship between those symptoms. And I cannot recall the exact number, but, you know, about 50% or more of the people with chronic pain also have sleep problem. And then a sleep problem, again, is also associated with, you know, chronic pain. So, yeah, there, there's certainly, you know, interconnections between these three, you know, variables, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Now, Kotaku, with regards, I guess, information, both for people that have osteoarthritis who are taking opioids, uh, clinicians who might be managing people with osteoarthritis who might be considering uh, the use of opioids, what... Mm-hmm. What implications does your research and or the future research that you're doing in this space have for those people? All right. So, you know, as I said, if you if they use opioid for a long time and then, you know, uh, the patients are likely have, you know, uh, potentially multiple adverse events or you know, side effects. So opioid Opioids should be still effective for the acute pain in a certain conditions, but if they use opioid chronically and it doesn't show the, any meaningful improvement in their you know, symptoms, and they, I think they should consider alternative treatments to the opioid. Wonderful. And so what, what alternatives, and I know you work in a school of uh, physical therapy, Kosaku, and I would imagine uh, probably <laughs> teach about this particular topic, but what alternatives to opioids would you be advocating for, for the management of osteoarthritis? Right. So overall, you know, exercise has been recommended almost by all treatment guidelines as the first one treatment for symptoms in people with OA. And this is because exercise has equal to or even larger treatment effects than, you know, pharmacological treatment, such as medications or injections in general. 
And while exercise actually has much less side effect to adverse events than the pharmacological treatments. And then another you know, treatment that I would recommend is actually patient education. The main aim of the patient education is to increase the patient's knowledge about pain and therefore decrease their fear of pain. And then fear of pain or in any psychological symptoms such as anxiety due to pain actually has been associated with pain, right? So that is why you know patient education is so important because fear of pain and depression or other psychological symptoms can actually cause their pain. So collectively, I would suggest exercise and education as alternative approaches to the opioid. However, unfortunately, exercise and education are you know, actually underutilized in the practice. So what I would like to emphasize taking this great opportunity here is that exercise, education are pain treatments as much as pharmacological treatments. Yeah, no, it's it's a great way to summarize a very complicated intervention area. But, you know, I think there are plenty of good alternatives to the use of opioids uh, that have both been, I guess, well publicized on this show, but I guess also mandated and advocated through with various guidelines. Now, Kasaku, we'll, we'll include a link to the article that came out in our show notes. But is there any other information that you'd like to point people towards that might be helpful in this space? So we have, you know, Instagram and Twitter talking about, you know, opioid-induced hyperalgesia and uh, people with uh, near osteoarthritis. And I am currently a director of, you know, the Prime PT Laboratory at UTEP. So if you could paste the link to my web website, that would be terrific as well. Fantastic. We'll include them in the show notes so that people can dig into that a little bit further. Now, Kusaku, just in the interest of picking your brain a little bit further about some of these important areas, but if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Oh, that's a big question. I would probably commit myself to fully conducting research to contribute to discover something new, like new innovative pain management strategies to help people with chronic pain. Because you know, we know there are so many things actually we don't know about pain in the practice. And then that I believe is one of the reasons why we still have so many people who are suffering from their symptoms. So we need more in the practice. We have to have better understanding of pain. So I guess conducting research is my way of contributing to you know, improve, improving healthcare. Well, you're already making a really valuable and important contributions, Kasaku. So I hope you continue to do so and you get the support that you need. I guess my favorite question, because I learn a lot from talking to people such as yourself, but why do you do what you do? What's what's your primary motivation? Right. So when I was seeing my patients with chronic pain, when I was a PT, which was like about 10 years ago, I was kind of disappointed myself because my patients, their pain either didn't improve or you know, came, came back worse after a couple of days or weeks. Again, I disappointed myself. And then eventually, you know, I realized that we have such um, limited knowledge about you know, pain. 
Therefore, we need research to discover something new, like innovative knowledge, better understanding of pain. So, and then, you know, this is the way to me to help people with pain. And I still remember uh, some of my own patients that I, that I saw, which was uh, more than 10 years ago. And I feel like I could have done better if I see them today because you know science has advanced dramatically since I have left my clinical care work. But still, even today, at this moment, we still have so many things we don't know about, especially when it comes to pain, right? So this is my motivation, actually. This is my motivation to conducting research to contribute, though it may be small, but to a better understanding of pain, trying to help, you know, directly, indirectly help people who are still suffering from their symptoms today. Yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful motivation. And again, I, I hope you continue to make the important differences and changes that you are. Now, in closing, Kosaku, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people that have osteoarthritis? Right. So I guess I would say, just keep updating your knowledge with your doctors, physical therapists, or other healthcare professionals. Because again, science advances, and then what you think, well, what people think good treatment may no longer be uh, so good treatment, or some treatment that may be good for others, but not for you. So there's no one size fits all treatment and the treatments should be individualized in people with osteoarthritis. So again, science advances. So keep updating your knowledge with your healthcare professionals and actively seek their advice and then discuss to modify the treatment plan uh, on a regular basis. I think that would be my humble message to patients with knee osteoarthritis. Yeah, I think it's it's great advice, Kasaku. And I think, you know, one one thing we try to do on the podcast is really empower people with increased knowledge. Um, and, you know, I think the advice that you're giving people there about tailoring care, um, making sure it's personalized to them, and that they keep being proactive about engaging with health professionals to continue to improve and challenge themselves is really, really well taken. So, Kasaku, Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate the work that you're doing um, and I hope you continue to make the important differences that you are. But really, thank you so much again for spending a really quality period of time to give us some important advice. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hunter. It was my pleasure. So I appreciate that that was a very complex topic. And for many of you who are not taking opioids, you might see that as irrelevant. But don't be surprised if in the future, a well-meaning clinician may think about prescribing opioids for you for your osteoarthritis. That's despite what guidelines suggest. So guidelines at the moment recommend against the use of opioids for the management of osteoarthritis. And that's primarily because the harms outweigh the benefits. We've obviously dug into one potential harm or side effect or concern associated with opioids today, that of opioid-induced hyperalgesia and the work that Kasaku and his colleagues have done around trying to understand whether that comes about by virtue of increased pain sensitization or other mechanisms. So at this point in time, 
it's unclear why hyperalgesia occurs in the context of long-term opioid use in osteoarthritis, but we do know that it occurs. We do know that opioids are not advocated for the management of osteoarthritis. There's a lot of both personal harm associated with it, but obviously also a lot of societal harm, which we're not going to touch upon today because that's a huge other complex issue. But again, it's not recommended for, if you're already taking opioids, we would strongly recommend pursuing some other form of treatment, many of which are widely available and accessible, and hopefully will serve you better longer term for the management of the pain and functional limitation that you have related to your osteoarthritis. So I hope you found today's content helpful. Between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.